you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, you're welcome to. If you don't have a copy of the Scripture, you're welcome to grab one of the black Bibles in the chairs around you. I'm going to read uh, just briefly by way of beginning, Luke 24, 1 through 13. You're welcome to follow along with me or in your copy of the Scripture or just listen as I, as I read. Here's what it says there in Luke 24, beginning in verse 1. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. They didn't believe them. Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stooping in and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Jesus was risen. Why do you look for the living among the dead? I would call this day, the day that they found the tomb empty, this. I'm probably certainly not the first one to characterize it this way. The day everything changed. This is the day that everything changed. Where suddenly looking for a dead person in a graveyard seems silly. Why do you seek the living among the dead? The day everything changed. I'm going to make a Give you a couple of ideas from the scripture why everything changed the day Jesus was risen from the dead. The first thing I want you to think about is this. Sin is not the problem. After this moment, sin isn't a problem. This is what Jesus said when he was hanging on the cross in John chapter 19. You're familiar with it. Jesus having hung on the cross for hours, and he knew at this point in his life that it was now over. And he said this, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood by, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said this, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What do you mean by it is finished? Does that mean he's done dying on the cross? No. What he's saying is now finally... The sacrifice for all sin is done. It's handled. My work as a substitute sacrifice for every sinner who would believe is now finished. Jesus is saying, I have now fully and completely taken upon myself the penalty for the rebelliousness of sinners. It's finished. The Bible says this in Romans 5.8. God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't die for us because we had a lot of potential. 
Jesus didn't die for us because we might believe in him. While we were still in full flight away from him as fast as we could possibly go, he died for us. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And in that moment, the Bible tells us over in 2 Corinthians this, that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. The Bible says in that moment on the cross that he who knew no sin, the one who had never sinned, actually became sin on our behalf. He became our sin. He died for us. He sacrificed for himself for us. He became our sin, and in fact, he gave us his righteousness. He said, now you are as righteous as I was when you trust me for what I have done on the cross. When Jesus rose from the dead, this was the day everything changed. Sin is not the problem. So I have a question for you. What is the problem? Well, there's a couple, but I'm going to highlight one. It's a pet peeve of mine, so since I'm standing here, I get to talk about my pet peeves. If you want to talk about yours, you can take a turn, I guess. If sin is not the problem, what is? Here's one. Religion is the problem. See, Jesus on the cross says it's finished. Sin is not a problem. There's no longer any obstacle between you and God by putting your faith in Christ. No obstacle. Nothing in your way. And what religion does is look for every conceivable way to put obstacles in your way to have access to God. Jesus says the work is done. You are accepted by grace, by faith. And religion says the work is not yet done. Get to work to try and earn favor with God. This brings to mind a guy you may have heard of in history. His name is James McCune Smith. He was a physician and an author, a pharmacist many, many years ago. In fact, he was the first African-American to graduate and receive a medical degree. He graduated from high school with amazing grades, stunning grades, and of course he applied to colleges. He wanted to be a doctor. How do you think that went? He got in nowhere. He finally was able to get accepted to a school in Europe. So he went over to Europe and received his education, his undergrad, his graduate, his medical degree, and he became a certified physician. And he returned to the United States and lived in New York and served the people of Brooklyn, both white patients and black patients, in opening a pharmacy as a doctor. So it's done. There's no more obstacles, right? He's a doctor. There's nothing in his way. In the course of his entire life, he was never accepted into membership with the American Medical Association. So you, here you have one. All the diligence, all the intelligence, all the grades, all the requirements, all the skill. And religion says, you have status that doesn't qualify you. That's what religion does. It, in many arbitrary ways, says, no, you aren't in. You're on the outs. Religion says you must achieve acceptance. You must achieve status. And even if you achieve a particular status, religion will come up with interesting ways to make sure people are, are kept out. That's the whole idea. Religion is no use if everybody's in. So people work to achieve acceptance and to have status in church. We work to have achievement and status in our personal life, to have power and influence in the world around us, to have importance. We work diligently in our whole lives, not just in relation to God, but in every area of our life. We work ourselves to the bone, saying, I've got 
to mean something. Sin is not the problem. Seeking to achieve God's favor through religion is. But the day everything changed gives us great hope because Christ, risen from the dead, says, I have achieved everything. I have given you my status. I have given you my glory and my righteousness. All of our self-achievement, all of our religion, all of our righteousness, all of our importance, all of our influence, how long does that last? Like 10 minutes, I think. If you're lucky, it all goes away. The glory we receive from Christ and trusting Christ lasts forever. I'll be honest with you. I shouldn't say this in church. I don't mean to offend you. No, actually, I do. I'm sorry. I said that wrong. This drives religious people nuts. That sin isn't a problem, and now we have the status of Christ. This drives them nuts. Let me give you an example. A company realized they were having trouble recruiting new hires. And they realized because they were needing to recruit experienced professionals, one of the things that was keeping them from being able to hire these experienced professionals from other companies was when you started as a new employee, you started with two weeks of vacation. And because they were experienced employees at their current company, they might have much more than that. And so the CEO of this company came up with this idea. He said, you know, we're going to have open vacation. What does that mean? There's no limit. You just need to let us know in advance and work out your schedule with your coworkers and your manager, but take whatever vacation you need. We need well-rested employees. As it turns out, there's a sideline. The problem they had was not people taking too much. People started taking less. It's a different conversation. Guess who this made a certain group of people in the company very, very angry? Do you know who it was? People who'd been there for a long time. And he went to the CEO and said, this is not fair that some new guy walking in the door has as much vacation as me. And the CEO said this to him, you've lost nothing. You have the same amount of vacation as you ever had. In fact, you have more if you want it. And they said, that's not the point. They can't have the same amount because they're new. That's what religion that's what religion does. The guy gets saved, walking in off the street, gets saved, and a religious person, well, he's got to earn his way in and kind of make sure he's going to stick. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> he's the same as me. Amen. The day everything changed gives us hope because we now receive Christ's achievement and we no longer have to cling to our own. As it turns out, for some of us, we need to come to this realization. You can't out-sin the cross, and you can't out-good Jesus. Remember at the Last Supper, he was telling his disciples how much he loved them? Do you know what he knew would happen in just a few hours? They would all leave him. And he died anyway. Some of us are carrying around these loads of guilt and shame saying, I am, the, I am the one finally throughout all of history who's able to send my way out of the family of God. You didn't. It's finished. You have Christ's righteousness. Jesus knew that death would lose, and he knew that dying for even rebels like us and betrayers like us would bring him great glory. So secondly, we need to understand this on the day everything changed. Death is no longer the problem. Missing real life is. C.S. Lewis wrote a 
said a children's book, maybe you've heard of it, The Chronicles of Narnia. You heard of this book? Seen the films? I don't know. The last book, it's not a great one. I call it The Return of the Jedi, The Chronicles of the Narnia. It's just not good. I mean, you've got to read it. You've read all of the rest. You've got to finish it. But right at the end of the book, there's a really interesting story. I've told you about this before, so if you've heard it before, pretend like it's new. There was this thing. At the end of the book, this stable that showed up, and it was the doorway into heaven because the world of Narnia was over. And people were fleeing into the doorway of heaven to, to live forever with Aslan, right? Well, these uh, dwarfs, these small earth creatures, had fled into the stable to escape the dangers around them but because their eyes were cynical and they had no faith, they didn't see heaven. They just saw the inside of a stable. And they all huddled in the corner of a stable, hiding from the dangers outside, not realizing they had walked into heaven. And Lucy Prevency walks up to them and says, uh, come on, guys, let's go. Uh, let's go into the rest of the, Let's go deeper in. Let's see what else is there. He says, this is what she said. Can't you see? Look up. Look around. Can't you see the sky and the trees and the flowers? Can't you see me? Well, how in the name of all humbug can we see what ain't there? So in their fear and their cynicism and in their reason, their eyes of faith were closed and they couldn't see the glories of the life that was being given to them. They couldn't see heaven. And now that everything has changed with an arisen Christ, the risk we have is not death. The risk is we might miss real life. In John chapter 20, we read about a guy named Thomas. You are familiar with him. Thomas was one of the 12. He was called the twin. Likely, he looked a lot like Jesus. Thomas wasn't with them when Jesus had first come, so the disciples had told him, you know, we've seen the Lord Thomas, and he said this, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. We should learn not to say things like that to Jesus. A little while later, maybe a week later, Jesus came along and stood among them and said, Peace with you. And who did he turn to first? Hey, Tommy, put your fingers here on my hands and put your hand, put it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. See, Thomas struggled with disbelief. His eyes were closed to the glory that Christ may have been risen. His eyes had to be opened, even with the Savior standing in front of him, say, open and believe. This is something you must simply trust. Jesus is risen. We have life standing before us in Christ. We have life eternal in Christ, if we will see it. It's on the horizon, and what we tend to do is we huddle in that little stable, and all we see are small things, and our eyes aren't open to the life that we have in Christ. We see the bills have to be paid, and the mortgage has to be kept, and the car is breaking down, and I'm hoping to get the promotion, and that Yahoo slacker next to me got it. What are they thinking? We see our, our eyes get on the small things, and, and Jesus is saying, open your eyes, look up, there's... There's a life on the horizon you can only see in me. Jesus opens our eyes, in fact, with his word. This is what he said to some disciples later on. They were walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, and they were discussing these things about Jesus' death. And they were sharing with Jesus. They didn't recognize him. 
just kind of funny. And they were bringing him up to speed on what had been going on. He was a little out of the loop. His internet was down. This is what they said to him. Listen, some of those who were with us, they went to the tomb. Some of those. What was that saying? Women. No, seriously. The Bible is stunning in the fact that it has most of the witnesses as women. At the time, the women couldn't even serve as witnesses in court. And these guys are saying some of those who were with us went to the tomb, but I don't know if we should buy it. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones. He's so much nicer than we would be. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Notice what he says. Not slow of heart to believe what you have seen and heard. Where did he go immediately to? To the Bible. He's saying, you have missed what I have made known to you through my word. Jesus opens our eyes, not only with our experience, but he says, go to my word. You will see my hope. You will see my glory. You will see the future you will have with me. Don't have your eyes on such small things. Open them up to the real life I am giving you. Open them up to what I have told you in my word. One day, those of us who are in Christ will see Jesus' wounds. We will see his hands. We will see his side. It will remind us of the glory he received in dying for us. But we ought to see them now, too, as Thomas did. We must see the wounds that Christ took on his body as not only the price of our salvation, but also the pattern of our life now before we experience life with him. I might put it this way. Real life in Christ is to live in the wounds of Christ and with the wounds of Christ. Because I live in the wounds of Christ and with the wounds of Christ and because he's the pattern of my life, I don't have to worry about missing out. Because someday I'm not going to miss out on anything. Because the wounds of Christ are my pattern in my relationships, I can be wounded and offer grace and forgiveness. Because of the wounds of Christ, I can experience disappointment and say, but that's okay because this place is not where my hopes lie. Because of the wounds of Christ, I can rest my hopes on the life that is yet to come. The day that everything changed, we now have hope because our best life is yet to come. And how we live now is determined by whether or not we actually believe his wounds are real and that he is raised. Did you hear what I said? How we live today is determined merely by whether or not we actually buy it. That his wounds are real and he is raised. Have you ever heard of a bucket list? You may know what a bucket list. I think it was a movie. I haven't seen it. My understanding is bucket list. What do you do when uh, you kick the bucket? Does that mean you die? So a bucket list is a list of all things you want to do before you kick the bucket. Okay, bucket list. A list of all things I want to do before I die. Might I suggest, as believers, we don't need a bucket list. We need a resurrection list. All the things we will do because one day I will truly live. I don't need to get it all done here. I don't need to get anything done here. The stuff I was made to do is, is yet to come. I'm going to have a list that says, because he is raised, I will do this. Because he is raised, I don't need that like I thought I did. He changed everything. He, 
He changed how people see funerals. You notice all the questions people got asked after Jesus was raised from the dead. Notice to the two women. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Because um, he died? Why do you weep? Because uh, I watched my hope die on a cross? I mean, it seems like an obvious question, doesn't it? But once he is raised from the dead, what are you doing? Why would you come to a graveyard? Why in the world would you cry over a dead Savior? He's risen. What does he say to his disciples? This, this question, I, I don't like it at all. Why are you troubled? I don't know, Jesus, you lived my life for five minutes? See what happens. Why are you troubled? I mean, but if, if you were lived on the other side of the curtain on the hope we have one day, say, why was I so worried about that stuff? That's what he's trying to draw us into. Why do you doubt, Thomas? So we'll conclude with this. Don't miss life. Seek life among the living. Don't miss it. Don't seek it among the dead. Seek life among the living. You know, there's a condition people can have. It's called malabsorption syndrome. Malabsorption syndrome. Don't write that down. I can barely read it, much less spell it. What happens is you eat, and your body is unable to absorb the the nutrients from your food. So no matter how much you eat, you don't gain weight. You don't get any nutrients from it. The more you eat, you could eat as much as you want, but you're never, gonna, you're never going to gain weight and be healthy. That's what it's like to seek life where there's no life. That's what it's like where you, let's go here and let's see if it'll make us full. Let's go here and see if we're going to be satisfied. And we can't understand why we're still hungry. Matthew 28, verse 1. I'm going to read it just for a minute, a couple of verses. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, you know, the other Mary. It's like 30 of them in the Bible. Thank you. (laughs) Behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled back and sat on the stone. Why did the angel sit on the stone? This is a joke. Are you ready? Why did the angel sit on the stone? Because he didn't have a mic to drop. Because death, you're done. Okay. Try and keep up. All right. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Don't be afraid. You know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, he is risen. Come see the place where he lay. The grave could not hold him. The guards could not contain him. Don't seek life among the dead. Seek life where there is life. And life anywhere other than Christ will always lead to hunger. Seeking life anywhere where Christ is not will always lead to hunger despite how much we eat. Despite how much we gain and we gather, we will always say it's not doing it. Our eyes need to be open to the fact that we're breaking apart. We're falling apart. Now, the folks under 30, they don't get it. But those of us over 40 roll out of bed and say, this life is not forever. (laughs) You guys sit on the edge of the bed, wait for your knees to catch up. I know it. And he's saying that you don't have to worry about it. There is a day coming. You will be made whole. You think this life has so much to offer when everything about this life tells us it's not going to last forever. 
Everything here is passing away, and the resurrection says everything in him lasts forever. 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us he is the firstborn among the living. That means that he says, I'll go first. I'll break open the tomb first, and you guys come after me. And then we're going to go into a life that actually, that actually matters and actually lasts. Christ is raised. He must reign. He will reign. And one day he will put all of his enemies under his feet, including sin, including death. The day everything changed. Sin is no longer the problem. In fact, religion is. Death is not a problem. Missing real life is. Don't miss life. Seek life among the living. Seek it in Christ. A couple of questions to ask you just to get you to think. Where is your hope? How do you figure that out? A couple of ways. You could answer this question. If I had blank, I would finally be happy. You know, if I had blank, I'd finally be happy. That's where your hope is. Another way to get at it is this. If I ever lost blank, I would be ruined. I don't know what that thing is, but that's where your hope is. I sure hope that thing is eternal. When the end comes, what are you counting on for your hope? I've got to be honest with you, in about 150 years, for most of us not even that long, nobody will remember we were even here. Not a one of us. I mean, maybe one or two, maybe. And probably not for good reasons. So when the end is, what, what's your hope? Is your hope that you're going to leave a legacy? Forget it. Nobody does. It all goes away. What is your hope that in 150 years you're going to be doing something that matters? It had better be in Christ because he's the only one that can take you from here to there. I'm going to let you in on a secret about the Bible. The resurrection is, is not intended to inspire you. It's not intended to lift your spirits. It's supposed to change everything. It's supposed to give your life purpose, your life meaning, because you finally realize this is not your life. This is not the main thing you were made to do. The resurrection was not intended to give us a great, inspiring message that everybody gets a second chance. Don't worry, you'll get a do-over. When we try to turn the resurrection story into nothing more than a Hallmark greeting card for don't worry, you'll get it better next time, we try to tame the story. This story is not tameable. The guards tried to tame it. How'd that work for them? He is saying, I am raised from the dead. Everything is different now. Everything has changed now. He's going to return one day, and he wants us to experience it with him. Think of it this way. Jesus has had a plan to die on the cross and raise from the dead for all of eternity. It's been on his calendar. He had a little reminder on his iPhone. Yes, he had an iPhone long before they were invented. He could do that. For all of eternity, he said, I'm going to die on the cross and be raised from the dead. That's been his whole plan, and he did it. How does that fit into our plan? Does his plan for all of eternity change Monday? His hope is it would. 
maybe you're a believer here today, I just want to challenge you with this one thing, and you're not going to like me for it. Is Jesus just the topping on an otherwise good life? Is Jesus just the religious fairy dust on an otherwise pretty good life? I shouldn't, now I thought of it, so I've got to say it. I don't have the ability to not say what I'm thinking. You see the gravy on your biscuits? I mean, you like the biscuits, but the gravy kind of takes it. I mean, we say we love Jesus. I love having kind of a religious flavor to my life. I like knowing that there's something bigger going on in, in, in the world around me. But, you know, I've got a, a lot going on. My life is actually pretty good. I'm actually a, a fairly important person, and, 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 and I'm glad that Jesus adds a little bit of that religious substance to it. The resurrection doesn't allow for that. The resurrection says, your life, what are you, what are you talking about? Everything that you've just described is going to go away in a very short period of time. Jesus becomes our life. The other question I have to ask all of us to consider is, do you have life? Have you come to that place where you say, you know what, I, I need his forgiveness and grace. I don't have life. And Jesus said, just trust me. Open your eyes of faith. Rest in me and I will give you hope of life forever.